Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan Labrice, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. Welcome to another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. 2021 was a year of firsts for the Fully Booked podcast. In March, we welcomed a Nobel laureate, Kazuo Ishiguro, author of Clara and the Sun. In May, a picture book author, Tracy Sorrell. We are still here, Native American truths everyone should know, illustrated by Frené Lessig, is a book I still think about all the time. A June episode celebrated a paperback launch, as opposed to hardcover, that was for Parakeet by Marie-Helene Bertino, one of my favorite novels of the last few years. And in August, a poet discussed an actual poetry collection, as opposed to fiction or nonfiction. It was Kava Akbar with Pilgrim Bell. Long story short, you can teach an old podcast new tricks, and the result was a banner year for Fully Booked. So, on this special episode, as a little holiday gift to you from all of us here at Fully Booked, we're rerunning two of our favorite interviews of the year. First up, episode 204, Kazuo Ishiguro. As soon as we stopped rolling tape, this interview shot straight into my pantheon of personal favorites. In March, as mentioned, Kazuo Ishiguro and I discussed his latest novel, Claire and the Sun, published by Knopf, a provocative look at a disturbing near future that marks a return to dystopian ground for the author. He was a lovely, down-to-earth conversation partner. The chat went many exciting and unexpected places, including a meditation on the devil went down to Georgia. So, without further ado, I give you Kazuo Ishiguro, author of Clara and the Sun. Welcome, Kazuo, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. Very nice to be with you, Megan. I will ask you, what is this book about to get a sense of how much you'd like to share, how much we might say about the story itself? I'm not very neurotic about spoilers and things. Oh. I, mean, I, I know, yeah, I know other people are, booksellers are, publishers are. I mean, mm. I, I, I'm really um, kind of quite reckless about this. Now. <laughs> I often get in, I get into trouble later, <laughs> saying, "Oh, you went on that show or something and told everyone." But, uh, but it, so I'm a dangerous person to ask this question to. But I mean, if I was summarizing, I, I'd say uh, Clara and the Sun is a, is about um, a little robot girl called Clara who has been created to prevent teenagers from becoming lonely. And it's a, essentially a story of how she's bought by a family and how she tries to save that family from heartbreak and mm. how she tries to enlist the uh, help of the son. Um, she has great trust in the son and that, that the son will, is good and powerful and will help her in the, in the, in the hour of need. So that's essentially the, the story, if you like. I like a little danger with my podcast, so I'm 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 ready for a little bit more. Yeah, this her relationship with the son, I would almost choose it as the central relationship of the book. Would you? It's one of the central relationships of the book. Yeah, she's solar powered. Okay, mm. so from the moment she comes into being, uh, and she's sitting in the store, and she knows very little about the human world. What she does know is that the sun gives her nourishment and gives all her fellow artificial friends, as they're called, AFs, hmm. their nourishment. And so right from the beginning, the, the sun is the source of everything that is good and protective. She believes in the sun. And when she looks out of the window of her store at the street outside to try and learn something about the human world, she hopes she will soon enter. She sees the sun helping everybody. That's what she thinks anyway. The sun is giving nourishment to everybody out there in the street, you know, to the passers-by and the, the tourists and the joggers and she also looks at them through the lens of loneliness because she knows that that's one of her primary tasks is to help human beings or a particularly human being you know who the teenager who 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 buys her and not get lonely so she she has to study loneliness so she tries to figure out what the hell's going on out there 
in the street in terms of loneliness. Now, is, is that is that couple, that, that guy there lonely? Is that, that that couple are embracing? Is that to try and avoid loneliness? And so that's how she goes into it. So the sun is very important. The sun has something to do with helping people not be lonely, giving them nourishment. And actually, when something bad happens to them, she thinks the sun can come and save them. It's interesting to to think at length about loneliness. Just by chance today, I glimpsed um, on social media, someone had reposted a story saying that Japan has recently created a position for a minister of loneliness, and it was actually modeled on a similar position created in 2018 in the UK. And the purpose of this person seems to be to consider why there has been an increase in suicides and why there has a, been a decrease in happiness, really. That's fascinating. I, I didn't know about that, but mm. it's the kind of thing you would get in Japan <laughs> probably, <laughs> and probably here in the UK. I, 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 to be honest, I, you mm. know, I, I try and keep up quite closely with the politics in this country, in the UK. I, I didn't mm. know about the Minister for Loneliness. Um, it sounds like the minister is trying to trying to create loneliness. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and they're a ministry of loneliness kind of distributing <laughs> this thing. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Clara is, I suppose, interested in loneliness in the same way that these ministers might be. But mm. I think fairly rapidly, because she is a very alien observer of mm. human behavior. Yes, she starts to ask more fundamental questions like, um, is it inevitable that human beings are lonely? I mean, not just lonely in the everyday sense of not having many friends to come around today. Much deeper than that, is there something about the condition of being a human individual that makes human beings inevitably lonely uh, in a very, in a more profound sense? You know? right. And, and she, she, I think she thinks, well, because because human beings are... An individual human being is actually very complex and unique um, mm. and very different from the next individual. That, that makes human, the human individual very interesting right. and perhaps worthy of special emotions. You know, you, it makes sense to say that you love one particular individual but not the next. Right. And each of us humans, I mean, we are, we are very complex, but by virtue of that complexity, it's quite difficult sometimes to build the bridge to the next person oh, and sure. even if we even if we do live in families physically close together is there something about our condition that that means that there's a hard core of us each of us that remains very lonely and that loneliness gets exposed at crucial crucial moments in our lives speaking of crucial moments in our lives i mean these are challenging things to contend with in what i would call the before times but now you know in the pandemic, it's um, it was quite an experience. I, the experience of reading this book was so notable for me, and I think it's one I'll never forget. It really made me feel a lot of things in my body tied to anxieties and stressors that have really gotten turned up to eleven, if we can borrow from Spinal Tap, you know, for the podcast, you know, in in the in the lockdown. Yeah, I have to say, echoes of our current situation in the novel is largely coincidental yes yeah, I, I finished the book before in fact i handed it in in december 2019 mm. um, when i personally had no suspicion of that you know this thing was going to happen um some people did by then i mean it was mm. already starting but I, I had no idea yeah I, I i can see that there are echoes i suppose i mean the only aspect that perhaps isn't a coincidence is that you know, i was trying to look into the future to some extent you know, being being of the generation I am, I'm 66 years old. I mean, it's quite mm. difficult for me to to get out of the old way of thinking about the world, right? And right. try to try to address the new. And 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 I'm looking very much at the fog, you know, mm. of the or what of the future, and just making out odd shapes and things like that. And it's possible that you know, it, here I am trying to sketch out kind of blurred shapes I can see just slightly there in the future, maybe there are things in common between the kind of society that I've painted that is on the verge of becoming dystopian, although mm. it probably hasn't quite gone there yet, and the one that we, we find ourselves living in now. I mean, the pandemic is, is an awful thing. It, yeah. it's, it's, the, the loss of life, I think, is, is shattering. 
And I don't think we have woken up yet to the real meaning of the of that the level of death that, that there's been. I think it, it it probably is a kind of a symptom of many things that can happen to us in 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 the near future and in the in the further future because because of the way the world is now and because of the threats to the world and because of the connectedness of the world. Mm. Yeah, of course, of course, in the United States, we recently crossed the grim milestone of 500,000 COVID-related deaths that were recorded. And I do not know, I don't think we're, we're anywhere near close to waking up to the reality of that or being able to comprehend it. And my particular vantage is, I, I, I know I must sound like I've always been a journalist, but before this, after college, my first job was working in the funeral industry. And among the many insights that gave me was really the distance from death most Americans enjoy on a daily basis. For instance, all day, every day around the city, you know, decedents are being transported from place of death to a funeral home or the medical examiner's office. And it's something you seldom see. I can't even recall seeing that happen in a neighborhood or in my city my whole life before I started working in that industry. And the fact that we don't see it and we don't have quite, we don't have much intimacy with it, it really does make that terrible number seem even more abstract. Yes, that's really fascinating what you say there. And that's interesting because you, you actually have this direct experience. Mm. Most of us don't, don't even have that. Perhaps understandably, we're, we are in the habit of being euphemistic about death, both yes. in, in the language that we use and in how we go about you know, daily life, as, as, as you've described it very vividly there, when we, we go to great lengths so that we don't actually see the mechanics of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't like to talk about it. We talk about people kind of passing or something like this. Yeah. And, uh, and this is understandable and maybe it's correct uh, a lot of the time. But there are moments when perhaps it just numbs us and perhaps it fools us sometimes and helps us delude ourselves when it when it's like this i mean i i heard one commentator saying about your death rate in the united states that it's more than the uh the total combatant deaths in the two world wars and the vietnam war put together mm, yes i know that our our death figure in the united kingdom which has gone over 130,000 is more than twice the civilian deaths in the in the second world war I mean, we're, we're talking about the kind of deaths you only usually encounter in 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 war situations, you know, uh, mm. and I think it's very difficult for us to quite quantify or understand just the emotional damage this is wreaking upon us. There must be millions of people around the world right now in in you know bereaved, you know, bewildered, mm. uh, having lost somebody very close to them. And of course, yes, I mean, we're trying to address the economic damage and all those things. But the emotional damage, I I think it's going to take a a long time for us to to come to terms with that. I agree. And I am frustrated thinking that a lack of recognition will lead to the perpetuation of, you know, the compound grief and extended nervous collapse. You know, they, it just seems like the system we've built for ourselves in this country, like it, it just doesn't seem to be a really great time for liberal democracies, man. You know, like it seems, it just, I, you know, like I used to think we were pretty exceptional, but that has really been challenged in many strange new ways, you know, of late. And it's just like, I don't know that, you know, the demands, the, the demands of the societies we've built, the demands of capitalism in particular, um, will will be able to accommodate the the real human cost. Well, let me try and say something a little bit more cheerful. Let's, um, let's. <laughs> coming, coming, coming out of this pandemic. <laughs> no, but I, no, I really absolutely take what you just said there, Megan, about, mm. you know, a loss of confidence about our liberal democratic system. Mm. Uh, most of the time I've been growing up, I assumed it was robust and that actually you know, we were just getting stronger. The whole idea of the, the, you know, this way of running open liberal societies was getting stronger and stronger. I was more or less middle-aged when the mm. Berlin Wall came down. And, mm. and and I just thought things were just going to get better in, in some some kind of way. The last few years, that confidence has definitely been shaken. But I have to say, during this pandemic phase, 
Um, yes. Okay. I mean, I, I, I have watched, let's say, with slightly horrified interest, mm. um, the events in your country, and particularly in. Uh, I mean, and of course, I mean, I'm talking to you in in Portland, Oregon, where where some very alarming scenes that I thought I would never see in the United States were occurring uh, earlier. I mean, um, however, what the pandemic has reminded us is the, the necessity of that scientific approach to truth, that you cannot just, I mean, we desperately need the scientists and we desperately need not just the people, but we need, we need the truth that they are about, you know, that, that they're going to un unveil for us about what is happening to us, to our bodies, how we get out of this, you know, what will save us and what will not. Mm -hmm. And that is not a matter of, you know, what you emotionally feel can be right. the truth. Right. Um, it's evidence-backed. We have come, to, we have been forced to respect, we've been reminded to respect that strict, rigorous scientific method that mm -hmm. we cannot really get anywhere without it. So we've had that on the one hand. We've come desperately to rely on that way of thinking, that way of proceeding, where they say, look, you provide the evidence, I provide the evidence. No, you're right, I'm wrong. Let's move on because that, that will take us closer to solving the problem. That's the method that we are relying on now as a species, not just yeah. as nations. At the same time, you know, we, we do have this situation where a lot of people seem to think whatever they feel can be the truth, regardless mm. of the evidence. Um, yeah. And so we have a clash. We seem to have this kind of a, a year when we've had kind of extremes in these two approaches to to truth. Um, and if I'm trying to be optimistic, I would say that, you know, I think that the logic evidence-based approach to truth um, has reasserted itself necessarily because we just cannot, I mean, it becomes self-evident hmm. that we can't get ourselves out of this kind of life and death situation without it. I'll say, you know, I you may you may not know it from. <laughs> yeah, I've really gone off road with this one, but um, I consider myself optimistic, too. I, I am an optimist. I was, I'm was i a born optimist. And one thing that I found so heartening was kind of like uh, the way Trump disappeared in a poof, sort of, from, from, the, from the media. The media seemed to just completely shift its whole approach to covering him at one certain point in January. And then it was, it, it was like, um, it was kind of like, you know, waking up from a long Rip Van Winkle sleep or, you know, or or a sleeping giant and or, you know, or or a parent coming home finally to restore some order. Yeah, I, I'm an optimist too, but mm, yeah. I, let me just say, <laughs> um, I'm not sure if he has gone. I don't know if he's gone personally or mm. even if he himself has gone. I mean, he's he's part of something bigger. Uh, I, I, and I think he's bigger than just your country. You know, I think, oh, I yes. think there's a whole way of approaching things, a whole range of emotions. Just to get back to this novel, I, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm <laughs> supposed you, to be talking. Thank you. You're doing, you're doing my job better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> if I can just, <laughs> in, in, the, in, the, in a kind of commercial spirit, I can, I can steer us back onto this, <laughs> onto the subject of my novel. I'm trying, I was, in in the novel, I was trying to actually uh, be optimistic as well. You know, mm, Clara, yes. although she's an artificial, she's an AI being, mm. uh, and AI beings are often characterized in fiction as something rather sinister that that is kind of out to trick human beings in, mm. uh, into usurping power and, and reigning over the erstwhile human masters. I wanted to present a character that was a figure of hope. And yes, she is an AI, but she reflects, she's reflecting, I suppose, the, the more positive aspects mm. of, uh, of human beings. Right. Uh, and right. she embodies them. And she has this trust in the, in, in the goodness of the sun. Yeah, she has a kind of a faith that she never quite lets go, that there, there is goodness somewhere. She can tap it. She can, she can deploy it in some kind of way because she wants, she desperately wants to, wants to help the human beings that, that she's come to live with because um, mm. they're faced with, with, with a potential tragedy of, of, of this child dying. And so that mixture of um, wanting, to, wanting to put some sort of hope and, and optimism into a landscape that's kind of on the verge of turning dystopian mm. with a lot of the things that we've been discussing 
um, right. about our, our world today. And I, I think it's kind of part of the strategy of of, of the novel. Um, I do. I I can do more bookish. Here we go. Uh, Clara judges or reads people um, by gender and approximate age. You know, just as her inroad to ch- starting to learn them and how she may relate to them. For instance, she'd easily read me as a thirty-eight and a half year old woman. Um, sometimes when she perceives something less pin-downable, though, like a, a complex emotion, it's almost like her vision f- fractures or compartmentalizes, at least to my mind. She sees boxes with different elements of what she's processing, what she's taking in from the environment before her. Um, what was it like for you to write from this point of view? And more, more generally, what is it like to write from a point of view other than your own? Do you see it as an act of translation or transcription? Well, let's take the first part of that. The, Very good. Just to stay with Clara for, for a moment and her yeah. vision. Um, yeah, I thought uh, this was quite interesting and challenging for me. I mm. mean, to having having decided that, okay, you know, let, let's suppose the narrator isn't actually human, although she has very human-like qualities. Yes. It does give you the opportunity as a writer to to just even do the visuals, you know, slightly differently. Mm. And um, I thought because she wouldn't have some of the kind of the introspection that a, that a normal human being would have, I would I would just to make up for that, I'd I'd allow her to to have kind of slightly weird ways of looking at things. So, as you say, when she when she doesn't quite know, when she's quite stressed and mm. she doesn't quite know how a, a person is staring at her, and she thinks, "Oh, is that a is that an angry look, or is that accusing, or?" Or are they just being compassionate? She would often see all three. You know, she'll see sets of eyes in kind of different grids in front of her. And some of those eyes will be staring accusingly. Some of them will be smiling and so on. You know, some of them will be not looking at her at all. They'll be looking mm. at something else. Um, so it's a kind of a, uh, this sounds very pretentious, but it's a kind of a cubist <laughs> kind of idea. <laughs> you, you bring art into it. I mean, for some reason, you, you, if I make references to kind of, rock music and things that's influenced me everyone thinks i'm very cool but here i have to kind of i have to i have to admit Mm. that there's some kind of kind of visual art stuff i've stolen from here and and that idea the cubist idea you you can see it in one glance several different uh options for how a person is feeling or how the face is um rather appealed to me and i thought I, i had the opportunity to do this with with Clara, so she doesn't see like this all the time. But at key moments of high emotion, she she divides up what she can see into different options, really. And so this this kind of happens from time to time, and and that's quite interesting because it, for a long time I've always thought there's ways there are ways of actually smuggling in quite avant garde experimental writing styles into mm. something that is quite mainstream and perfectly easy for everybody to understand if the context is correct. And an example of this is a, a record released by Charlie Daniels about 30 years ago called The Devil mm. Went Down to Georgia. I don't, I don't oh, know if yeah. you know this. I do. <laughs> <laughs> now, he, he, he was a great musician. I mean, he's a terrific musician. He could play everything, right? Mm-hmm. But he, this was just a commercial kind of a, a kind of country type uh, song, you know, about a fiddle contest between this, this young fiddler and the devil. And he manages to smuggle in this kind of really crazy kind of avant-garde music in there because he passes it off as the devil's contribution to this competition. Yeah. <laughs> so the boy plays his fiddle piece, and it, it sounds like a, you know, a good piece of fiddle playing. And then the devil plays, and, and it is just weird and wild that you would not usually be allowed to go anywhere near like a commercial single with that kind of weird music. But because it's... It's framed as the devil playing. We all kind of relate to it, and we kind of it has an impact on us. It has a kind of strange emotional impact. I mean, I, I never understood why the devil lost. By the way, I thought this solo was much, much but, but but anyway, we'll leave that to one side. Um, and I, I've always thought, well, that's not you, know, you can do that. It, um, you can take readers with you with really strange stuff mm. and quite exciting stuff. Um, that would in other respects be called avant-garde or weird or strange, but um, put it into context, people will follow you, you know, logically and emotionally. Mm. And, and that 
you know, quite strange techniques will, will connect with people. This one certainly did. And I, and that, that honestly, that's one of the sig significant contributions to what made it such a remarkable reading experience. Now, I won't press you on the, the multiple, you know, follow-ups to that question, but I do have one I've been dying to ask if you have time for just one more. Yeah, I'm, I'm, no, I'm having a very good time. Um, As am I. <laughs> <laughs> um, we learn early on that artificial friends may be girl or boy. Why did you choose girl? Well, I guess she doesn't have to be a girl, but oh. I mean, it was quite important for me that I think emotionally it was important for me that she's a girl. Um, mm. I just thought that one through. I, I was about to say <laughs> okay. that I thought my mother, my mother was a kind of a model uh, at the back mm. of my mind uh, yeah. for for somebody kind of almost like a program, you know, uh, to be to to do the best for her children, mm. uh, almost. In the same kind of determined way that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's first Terminator <laughs> relentlessly <laughs> hunts down <laughs> John, whatever he is. I mean, uh, you know, every single move has that goal at the back of it. Yeah, you know, mm. my mother w was like that about doing the best for her children. Yeah, you know, mm. everything she thought, everything she did, it had to further that goal. You know, and there is something like that. There is some sort of resemblance between the way that human beings are programmed to to feel towards to members of our family towards each other mm -hmm. and the way perhaps machines are you know um, in in that kind of determined way so clara goes through the, the entire kind of typical human lifespan in just a few years I mean, she mm -hmm. starts off as a kind of a toddler uh, that knows nothing and is very hungry to learn and she learns at an exponential rate but before long she becomes like a kind of a a, a teen or a sibling to this, to Josie, the teenager she's with. And I, I guess it was quite important for me there too, that it should be two girls, you know, there's a slight rivalry or, but very rapidly, Clara becomes kind of like a parent. Mm. I mean, she worries about Josie's welfare. And, and this is why I, I slightly paused. I'm not suggesting that a male parent wouldn't be just as determined. Or sure. Whatever, but, uh, and then at the end, I saw Clara like an elderly person, uh, the very people she was, uh, she was so needed by ones. No, no longer need her. And, uh, you know, what she has is time to just look back and wonder if she did her job well. Uh, but she's kind of not needed. You know, she redu she's redundant. You know, she's kind of left in the yard. And so I guess there was something about, there was some relationship to my mother there. But the other thing I'd say is that Clara has in many ways has a relationship with a lot of literature characters in literature for very young children. You know, I'm talking mm -hmm. about these picture books yeah. for five-year-olds, six-year-olds, you know, and that too, I guess, you know, the main character can be male or female, but often it, you know, in those books, the main character is like a, like a bear or a doll <laughs> right. or a soft toy. Okay. Right. Uh, and Clara is something like that. You know, I, uh, to be honest, I mean, mm -hmm. that, uh, I first thought of this story in terms of a, a, a story like that for very young children mm. uh, and and a lot of the atmospheres and the even the visuals are taken from the kind of style that you would see in in those um, in those kinds of books you know the kind of the bright sun in the sky the big sky um, mm. and and she has a lot of the qualities of a character like that she she puts together two and two and makes eight quite often because you know, she, she has that kind of small child's logic that yeah. says um, that that you know that a kind of logic that's permitted in those books for young children. Uh, that you know, the moon can be this kind of disc outside the bedroom <laughs> that that speaks to you, and and you can open your window and cross over to to the moon just just with a ladder or something. I mean, that that kind of that seems to make sense when when what you know about the world is very limited, right. and you just put together. There's little bits of information, little little things that you can see, and you come to these kind of wonderful conclusions. And so, I wanted Clara to behave like that. And even as she became very sophisticated in her knowledge about some aspects of human life, I wanted her to retain that kind of naivety and childlike quality about other things, and and just hold on to some of these crazy logic um, conclusions that she re has reached you know, early in her life. Yeah, I mean, the gender perhaps isn't so crucial, but I mean, mm. she has a lot to do with, on the one hand, <laughs> you know, these kind of furry animal or, you know, 
dull kind of um, protagonists in mm -hmm. children's books. And on the other, I guess, with my late mother. So um, make what you will of that. <laughs> <laughs> I shall. <laughs> oh, and it's marvelous in my mind, I have to say. It's marvelous. Ah, I, I'm, I'm just vibrating with delight here and in gratitude for your generosity with me. Is there anything else you'd like to mention um, in the course of our conversation? Anything else about the book you'd like to share with our listeners um, before we are released into what I hope will be the remainder of a beautiful day? I guess that, well, we talked about spoilers at the beginning, but I probably yeah. just, I, I should just say without trying to actually have spoilers. I mean, I should <laughs> just say the, apart from this loneliness question that makes Clara see human life in a certain kind of way, the questions that she comes to ask, which are at the heart of this book, it would be, what do human beings mean when they say they love each other? I mean, she, you know, she, because she's from the outside, she doesn't quite understand what human love is, and, mm. and, but she's fascinated by it. And the other question that leads on from that is: you know, is there is there something is there like something like a soul that's contained inside each human being, which perhaps she herself does not have, that makes each human being unique and irreplaceable, and which makes makes it meaningful for somebody to say, you know, I love this person, but I don't love this, this other person. Um, so that that's that's the question that 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 is at the heart of this story, I guess. Is there something so special, like a soul or something inside people that you can't quite take a photograph of, but it's there, that makes them almost impossible to replace? You know, that, that, that makes them kind of, you can't replace them, I mean, I should say. I must believe that there is. And with that, I will say ish, if I may. Thank you so much for joining me today on Fully Booked. Thank you, Megan. It's been it's been really it really has been <laughs> really good fun and and it's made me optimistic <laughs> to talk to you. That was Kazuo Ishiguro, author of Clara and the Sun, published by Knopf. And up next we have episode two thirty-three, Mary Roach. Mary Roach was one of the very first authors I ever interviewed for Kirkus Reviews way back in twenty thirteen, and I'd been dying for another chance to chat ever since. Our September discussion of Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, published by Norton, was, as anticipated, an absolute hoot. We started with whether she prefers her four-letter books to her five-letter books, and you'll see what her answer was pretty soon, and we ended with a careful consideration of what we'd name our heavy metal band. It's 30 minutes of feral fun starting soon, first the break, then we'll be joined by Mary Roach. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. Welcome, Mary, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. When I got the confirmation that you would be on the podcast, the first thing I thought was, this is going to be a hoot. Oh, it will be. It's, gar <laughs> it's, gar it's guaranteed. Okay, hoot, guaranteed. Guaranteed. Okay. <laughs> so your latest book is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. It's your seventh book in 20 years. I mean, just to throw everything off kilter, I think this is a fair question to ask at this point. Do you have a preference for your four-letter books, Bonk, Gulp, and Fuzz, or the five-letter books, Stiff, Spook, and Grunt? Oh, wow. That's a great question. People ask me about the number of words in the title, but nobody's ever asked me about the number of letters. Oh my God. You ask the questions, woman. Okay. Let's see. Stiff, spook, bonk, fuzz. I'm going to have to go with, I don't care. I don't, I don't, I don't, I totally don't give a shit. I don't yeah, care. I, I would have accepted, I totally don't give a shit, or I would have accepted four letters because that's like, that's kind of like the Miss America answer as we're, we're slated to discuss a four letter book today. So I would, you know, I would, depending on the level of media training and, and the giving a shitness, I would have, you know, either one made a lot of sense to me. So thank you for that answer. I don't even care how many words, like I, I, I was all excited that this book was going to be nine syllables and three words the title. It was mm. 
It was supposed to be, it, well, it was originally entitled Animal Vegetable Criminal. Ooh, that one's good too. Uh, yeah, right. But then um, expletive deleted Mark Bittman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, nothing against the man, but he put this uh, put out a history of food called Animal Vegetable Junk, which uh. is not quite the same beauty of a play on animal vegetable mineral, but whatever, we'll let him have it because he got yeah. there first. Anyway, so I-, I was all set to do nine syllables and three words. Oh my God. I'm going to go, I'm going to go on the record, you know, because people can hear this when we're through. I'm going to go on the record and say that his was inferior to yours. Yeah. Thank you. It was. It was it, well, yeah, I'm going to go on. I'm on that same record with you. I am. Oh. I'm sorry, Mark. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> Apologies, Mark. Okay, listeners. So now we have two titles, two, two known titles, one title that ended up being formal and one, one that was an alternate, a first runner up. What is this book about, Mary? Uh, this is a book about animals and humans kind of getting all up in each other's worlds. Mm. So it's uh, animals, you know, we have laws. You, you you can't commit crimes like murder or manslaughter, vandalism, littering, trespassing, jaywalking, but animals do all of this. And of course you can't give them a ticket or a fine. So what do you do? You know, what do you, is this? So it's basically, it's a book about human wildlife conflict or, you know, wildlife crime prevention. Like what can, what can, experts, professional scientists, like what, oh, what can they do to kind of deal with this? And whether it's bear attacks or deer jumping out into freeway traffic, jaywalking, that is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of those who grapple with these matters professionally, the scientists, et cetera. I mean, if if someone were to ask you what, what characterizes their offices around the world, like you go, if you're going in, you're having a meeting, you're having an interview with one of these people, what are you going to see in, in one of their offices? <laughs> I can tell you what you're going to see. You are definitely going to see some taxidermy. Mm. We, you know, I spent some time at the National Wildlife Research Center, which does a lot of this work, various fish and wildlife agencies, which also are involved in this work. And there is always taxidermy. My favorite, the California Fish and Wildlife Office, um, the receptionist, she's she or he was a she when I was there, uh, sitting at the desk calmly and over her head on a ledge was a crouching cougar. It was like <laughs> as though about to jump on her. It was like, does that make you at all nervous? <laughs> and then in the waiting area, you know, they have these, because it's Department of Fish and Wildlife, they do hunting licenses. So they have all these brochures, you know, hunting schedules and lots of paper material and little brochure racks. And then there's this huge hawk like coming down with its talons open like about to grab a hunting brochure (laughs) (laughs) and another place i was like sitting in the waiting area at the national wildlife research center and i put my coffee down on the table and they had this elaborate um taxidermied it was like a phone pole with these i forget which birds they were they look kind of like parrots but i don't think they were they were but but a bunch of them and then they nest on telephone wires and cause problems so they had this taxidermy display of these birds and my coffee is right under <laughs> the birds which made me kind of nervous cuz birds crap you know just uh, totally uh, yeah anyway that's what you're going to see Fair enough. Listen, I've got a journalism question for you next, and I'm going to use a verb that sometimes has a negative connotation, but I'm only using this verb kind of because I'm following your lead. Because in this, in the course of two introductory paragraphs in this book, I noted that you use to cow and to bear, like in two within two paragraphs. Like I, you're a major word person, and you're tipping your hand all over this book. I didn't even realize that. I know where you're talking about to cow. Yeah, yeah to yeah. cow the, the population. Yeah. Yeah. To, to bear, I, that was totally unintentional. You see, you're just so good. You're doing it in your sleep. So I'm going to say, huh, <laughs> like, wow, yeah, good. So good. So just fo- again, just following your lead, and no negative connotation implied. But um, how do you weasel your way into these offices? <laughs> how do you how do you get these people to talk with you? That's a good question. I'm uh, uh, because that's the key. To a good book, in my opinion, is that you've done good weaseling. You have weaseled your way. I, I am the, the, I am the star weaseler. I will never give up. I am persistent. I will wear them down to a stub. I yes. will, and even I will even in the case of uh, packing for Mars, I had some problems with, with NASA and the Japanese Space Agency. Like just kept saying no, and I go, well, 
you know, why are you saying, you know, who's saying no? Maybe I could talk to them. Maybe I could, you know, put their mind at ease. Maybe I could da 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 da. And she just kept refusing. So, um, and this was for a cadaver. They were testing a uh, the capsule splashdown. If it was a, if something happened with would any with the the occupants of the capsule, you know, what would happen? Would they break a bone? What anyway? So they had to do a very special cadaver test of the, in the space capsule. And I was like, why don't you, know, why don't you want me there? It's like, you're trying to keep your astronauts safe. What is the problem? Anyway, they were adamant. And so finally, and the researcher who's not at NASA, he's at Ohio state. He goes, Mary, just show up. So I did. I just showed up and the, <laughs> the researchers, the people from NASA were like, Oh, hello. Nice to meet you. Who are you? Oh, I'm Mary Roach. And they, they got this stricken look and they ran down the stairs and they called <laughs> the public affairs off. They're like, Mary Roach is here. Mary Roach is here. They told the students, don't speak to her. And finally, you know, the woman from public affairs just goes, Mary Roach is there. Oh, just talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you sound like the Redcoats. Mary Roach is here. Mary Roach is here. The Roaches are coming. The Roaches are coming. <laughs> I know. Oh it's my like, god! It was, it was a lot of drama for what I'm not really sure, and that's happened a couple of times. So, so, um, and I, I feel like saying, I don't know if you're familiar with my books, but like this is going to be a scene either way. So, <laughs> you know, maybe better for you to cooperate if you know what I mean. <laughs> right, yeah. I know what you mean. As a fan, as a longtime fan, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's like it's going to be in the book anyway. Um, <laughs> you mentioned uh, the posed cougar earlier, so let's 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 sink our claws into cougar. Sure. Um, one thing that I found tremendously comforting in this book, especially, was that the human skull is too large and round for a bear or a cougar to crush like a grape. <laughs> yes, that is true. However, however, mm. um, it is uh, a, a common occurrence if if one of these animals is trying to bite your head and crush it like a grape it won't they can't crush it like a grape but they can kind of peel the grape do you mm-hmm. know what i mean do you know yeah. what i'm saying yeah, yeah teeth, I, teeth come together skin comes off so less comforting yeah i think you i think you use plum in there i do yeah very ripe plum. fruit <laughs> exactly <laughs> very ripe plum you bite down the skin pulls away yeah um so less um, less comforting than perhaps you thought <laughs> Where were you when you were learning about cougars? Actually, I spent some time with a cougar researcher, but the, the, when I learned about the plum, the aforementioned plum unhappiness, that was a training. It was like a five-day, it's called WART, which is a terrible acronym. <laughs> the, the people who run it will say so themselves. Anyway, it stands for Wildlife Human Attack Response Training. So. Basically, this is teaching fish and wildlife or fish and game or whatever you want to call those people who deal with wildlife. When there's been a fatality, an attack, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, these are the people who come into the crime scene. And there's a lot of overlap with human crime scenes, as in human on human killings, where they're going to, you know, they're going to seal off the region, the Mm -hmm. area. They're going to be collecting evidence and the body and looking to do forensics that would identify, first of all, what species. Human, mm. cougar, wolf, bear—like which species did this? And then which, when they, if they can trap an animal close by, you know, figuring out is this actually the perpetrator? Is this the right, or do we have our bear, or do we let the suspect go? Which so it's kind of cool. It's kind of like what happens in um, the crime scenes that we're more familiar with, where, where it's a human who did the killing. This is one. This is one of the earlier chapters, and I mean, like right from the jump, I'm I'm getting this is like a signature. Mary Roach move is like you've got you've got these subjects with the good names, and I I mean like in this one alone you've got the co-founder of Wart Kevin Van Dam. One of the instructors is named Ben Beetlestone. Come on, <laughs> and I I I have to ask you, you know, and our listeners want to know: Do you overlook people with regular names and go straight for? <laughs> <laughs> do you favor the Ben Beetlestones over the Jeff Bridges? Or I I wish. I could say that I go out of my way to find these um, people with amazing names. And sometimes they're crazily appropriate. Like uh, the answer is no, I don't. I don't screen them. I'm just, they, they're just, they, they appear. It's magic. But my favorite is from Gulp. I had called UCSF because I have to, I, I was turning 50 and I had to get a colonoscopy anyway. I'm like, you know, who should I, maybe I should 
get my colonoscopy without drugs so I can see my intestines and have a conversation with the, the guy. Who can you think of? And she's like the public affairs woman. Well, um, I think it might be most interesting to, for you to talk to. Let's see. We have Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Turdeman. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. You are making this up. She's like, what? What do you mean? This <laughs> like, name is Dr. Turdeman. Yeah. There were tons of those in, uh, oh my God, there was a guy who studied, uh, the, the guy at this, the soap and detergent association, like a trade association. His mm-hmm. name is Keith Grime. Oh no. <laughs> there were so many of them for that book and I don't look for them and I don't screen people. I, it is just bizarre. Um, one person of interest from this book, and I, I, you know, have to just, you know, throw a dart right now in the in the Douglas fir chapter. I mean, you know, as <laughs> as somebody with nothing in my head approaching this book for the first time, I would have assumed that it was, you know, animal focused. But like, you're in the kingdom of Animalia and the kingdom plantae, you know, in this book, and and Douglas fir trees can kill Douglas fir trees. Yes, no, I I I like you would have mm-hmm. assumed I was going to mostly be featuring animals. But then when we thought of the title Animal Vegetable Criminal, my editor early on, she's like, Mary, you don't have enough vegetables in this book. (laughs) And I'm like, Jill, it's kind of just suggesting nature. She's like, no, you need some vegetable matter. So so now now that we've lost Animal Vegetable Criminal, I think people are going to go, reviewers are going to go, I see no reason why Ms. Roach included (laughs) the chapter on danger trees. But once I saw that some trees are actually classified as danger trees, which I mean, cracks me up because it's like danger mitten. It's like, you know, <laughs> danger fairy dust. It's just like you, trees. They're peaceful and lovely. I know. Swaying it's in the breeze. like Swaying it, in the breeze. I mean, but uh, totally an irresistible yes. couple of words there. To, danger, to, to, danger tree. Danger trees. Yeah, so for people, for our listeners who don't know what a danger tree is, it's a dangerous tree. No, it's a tree. <laughs> Duh. It's a, um, it's a tree often a very big, very old Douglas firs, hundreds of years old, and they start eventually in their very protracted declining years, they start to, they may start to rot from the inside out or the top down. They start to get unstable. And these very big, very old, beautiful trees are often like in legacy uh, forests, like people pay money to go and walk amongst them and marvel at how beautiful they are. So if one of them falls over, That's a a lawsuit. That's a bad thing. So there are uh, people whose title is danger tree faller assessor and danger tree faller, which is a faller is what they say in Canada for like lumberjack or what else do we call them here? Not just lumberjack. There's another word. Logger? Yeah. Thank you. Logger. Logger. Yeah. Um, so they call them fallers up there. So, so they'll bring in a guy who specializes in danger trees because it's super dangerous to bring down a danger tree uh, because it's starting to rot. You can't, I mean, normally when you cut down a tree, you can steer it. Like you make a cut, you can predict which way it's going to fall, but when they're really rotted and really heavy and big, sometimes they go the other way and take you out. You, the faller, 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 deader, deader faller. This, and this is leading us all the way around the tree because this brings us back to the idea of names. This guy's got a cool nickname. I, you know, like it's not it's not like, you know, Mr. Tree or anything, but <laughs> Dave Tree. It's not Dave Daisy Waymer. Yeah, Daisy. Is, is the, I mean, can you can imagine remember the Monty Python I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay that yeah, sketch where they and then like verse 3, I like to put on women's clothes. So it yes. was just like playing on the macho reputation of a lumberjack or a logger, or a faller, uh, as they are variously known. So the fact that this guy, his name is Daisy, and people, and that's what he goes by. Everybody's like, yeah. hey, Daisy. But he's a pretty macho guy. He's like, works with explosives, and he uh, takes down two-ton trees. I don't know if it's two tons. It's in the book. But anyway, his name is Daisy. And I'm, I'm like, you know, initially I was thinking D-A-I-S-Y. Yeah. And I was like, Wow, your name is Daisy. Wow, that's like a the boy named Sue. I bet you grew up <laughs> <Yeah>. tough. <laughs> but as it turned out, he was sort of a stoner when he was younger, and it's D A Z Y. Right. <laughs> so barely always in a daze. Not so much anymore now because you don't no. want to be really stoned no. when you are setting explosives. 
Absolutely and, not. You want yeah. to be alert. And I mean, as this book suggested to me, I did check him out on YouTube. And you like, first of all, he's got a nice deep voice too. Very butch, all of it. Um, yes. But uh, watching these, how he takes these trees down, it's pretty stunning. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. What, what's also cool about it is that they don't take the whole tree down. They, he, he climbs up two thirds of the way, as you know, because you've read the chapter and takes off the top, like the top third, so that the tree is now, it weighs less and it's more stable. So that buys some time. And you also still have the beautiful tree in the forest. Like nobody can tell that the top third is gone because these trees are so freaking huge. You'd need, you'd need binoculars to see up at the, that the top has been blown off. Uh, and it may also creates uh, a lot of habitat, like space for uh, animals because it starts you know rotting from the top down. It's then a hollow tree is also sort of great for wildlife to live in. So although blowing up trees sounds very anti-environmental, surprisingly, it it, it isn't because they're, um, you know, they're dying anyway. They're on the way yeah. out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though, because like the, one of the through lines in this book, like with the, let's take the trees, you know, like the people do not want these majestic trees destroyed. Even if they're dead, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're present for us. We want to sit there. We want to marvel. We want to look up as far as we can. Binoculars or no. And it's like one through line of the book is kind of like grappling with, you know, like what interventions are necessary, yes. what interventions are affordable, what interventions will be accepted by the public. Right, exactly. Very yeah. in interesting. Yeah, and a, and really a tough call in a lot of cases mm -hmm. because we in this country are are. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's kind of a split along the political lines. Somewhat, there are people who really hate. Uh, I mean, like look at the. I mean, I didn't write about wolves, uh, but wolves are a very heated topic. There are people who. Oh yeah, any large mammal, cougar, bear, wolf. There are people who are fiercely protective of them uh, and just don't want, they just don't want any harmed ever. And there are other people who are like, take them all out. <laughs> They're killing my yeah. livestock, yeah. you know? And I, and, and I understand both positions, um, but the, but the, um, the animals end up suffering. I mean, if we could get, get people, get people in these two camps to, um, to talk to each other and to try to understand the other's perspective and come up with some solutions, um, some compromises that would be great, but it's hard to do. As we know from the politics in this country, it's hard to get people to stop and just listen to the person they're angry at. And so, yeah, these animals bring out this kind of conflict. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and it's very hard for the people who work in this area professionally. You know, the, the people they're like people who work at fish and wildlife agencies or fish and game, however they want to call themselves. They often they tend to be people who went into this line of work because they love the outdoors and they love animals. And now they're the ones, you know, when, when, uh, when a bear starts to be a threat to public safety, it's gotten habituated to people and to breaking into people's homes. Now it's entering, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a, it may not think of itself as a threat. It's just after the shit in the refrigerator, but yeah. it, you know, if you have a dog and you get in the way, I mean, bad things can happen. And so it's, so it is considered a threat and, um, and that animal will be destroyed. And that's very, uh, you know, it's bad for the bears and it's upsetting for people. And, um, it's just, it's, uh, it's, and the people who have to do the destroying are these poor, these people who really, that's the last thing they ever want to do in their career is kill a bear. I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing. I, I can't speak for everybody who's gone sure, into this field, but the people that I spoke to, um, that's really tough. And they get a lot of hate mail and death threats. And it's, it's really, it's a hard situation because it's not, it's not their fault and it's not the bear's fault. It's the fault of typically people who have not secured the things that attract bears or trash dog food on the porch, you know. Um, I mean, sometimes they just break into houses no matter what you do. But um, there's, you know, there's a lot of ways to try to uh, prevent these things from happening anyway. So, yeah. I don't even know what what was the question was there. I just started. Did, did I up. ask a question? I don't even know. I just started babbling. No, 
That's good. That's good. That's what that's what we're known for here at Fully Booked. <laughs> Thank you very much for, you know, keeping the brand robust. Um, now, the, while you were answering that question, I was thinking of like the image of, you know, this this bear in Colorado with its barata smeared snout, oh, yeah. you know, in front of Louis Vuitton. And you note that usually you live for something incongruous, like a bear in front of Louis Vuitton, you know, but that it actually was it was a sight that made you sad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This was a a bear. I, mean, I went out with this bear researcher at three in the morning to the back alleys of Aspen, where behind the restaurants, there's a bunch of restaurants all in a row and they share dumpsters and there's a lot of delicious food scraps. Delicious for a human, delicious for a bear. Bears are omnivores. They're like, whoa, sustainably farmed Sakuna Bay salmon, bring it mm. on. Mm. You know, they're, they are, uh, they know that there's good eating back there. So they come down and, and um, these are bears that get used to being around people that are willing to take the risk because there's a big payoff and in, in terms of the food. Um, but this these typically these things don't go well for these bears, you know, um, and you can try, you can, you can capture a bear and you can take it elsewhere. You can take it back to the woods, if you take it back to the woods where it came from, it, you know, it'll find its way back. If you take it far, far away to another region, um, then you, you as in the wildlife agency, um, if you, it's called translocation. Um, what ha- if bears are very good at finding their way back over, over you know, they can 150 miles or so, uh, as I think is the record. But they'll also um, they tend to wander into the closest human settled area and start going after garbage again. That's they've learned that that's. Uh, a bounty of food and bears, particularly bears about to hibernate. They're looking for a big source of calories. <clears throat> they need to put on fat. So, you you know, you're kind of moving the problem. I mean, that, they'll, they, wildlife agencies do it from time to time. Uh, 75% of them do it from time to time. Only 15% of them think of it as an effective solution because they're the bears. Once they've learned that behavior, they tend to do it in the next location. But yeah, that one bear, you know, just so cute. You know, we stood there, the researcher and I were like 20 feet away and watching them. And, I, you know, I've, I haven't spent that much time close to bears. So it was a th- kind of a thrill for me. And they're just, they're so lovable and so beautiful. And this bear, you know, we, he eventually ran off, off the steps and went up onto this mezzanine area of this outdoor mall. And he was kind of hanging out. Yeah. And last I saw of him in front of the Louis Vuitton <laughs> boutique. Mm. And, which is, you know, that kind of visual non sequitur is <laughs> usually kind of entertaining, but it's just made me sad, you know, to think this poor guy is probably going to end up dead. I don't, I don't know. Maybe who, who knows? Maybe he'll get translocated. Maybe he'll stay in the woods. You never know, but more likely than not, it, there'll be some encounter with a human that ends with the agency having to destroy him. Yeah. And yeah. you write, you write in this book that, you know, we could see that with increasing frequency, add bear break-ins to the list of possible consequences of climate change. Yeah, the, the uh, Colorado folks did the uh, did a study where they radio collared, I think it was 61 bears, and they looked at the length of, um, the, the, they compared the t- temperature, average temperature, uh, with how long the hibernation lasts. And when the temperature goes up by two degrees, um, hibernation is shorter by a week. So that means it's another week where the bears are out on the land looking for food. So the warmer it gets, the shorter amount of time that the bears hibernate. It's kind of like, you know, Canada geese uh, in some areas, they're hanging around longer, uh, partly because there's a lot of, they find a lot of food, but you know, they're, they, they, we have Canada geese here in Oakland and a few of them stick around year round. Uh, most of them come and go. So they, they are annoying to people for a, a short span of time when they're shitting everywhere. Uh, but now more and more of them are sticking around. And I imagine part of that is uh, climate related. I mean, it's also, I think they learn that there's good, good eating. But um, yeah, the, so right, the, 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 the things that animals do because it gets cold, whether it's migrating or hibernating, you know, the warmer it gets, uh, the less they do that. And uh, in those two cases, that means more 
time around humans. Mm, yeah. <laughs> More time to be irritating the humans. <laughs> now, I don't know what counts as a spoiler alert for meticulously researched, exquisite, humorous narrative nonfiction. But... Oh, I like that <laughs> sentence very much. <laughs> there you go. I've been chewing that like a lot of gum. It just is out for you. One. Say that mm-hmm. again, man. <laughs> I don't know what count. No, I'm, <laughs> we'll just roll the tape. Roll the tape back, everyone. But um, so at the end, the end of this book to me suggests that you're already making some modifications in the way you move around the world based on what you learned in the two years spent researching this book. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always been the kind of sap who takes a spider outside instead of killing it. I just like I get. Oh, yeah. I don't know what what a spider's life is like. It doesn't seem all that exciting to me, right. but he he or she probably really enjoys that life. So who am I to bring a shoe down on it? So I'm that kind of person to begin with. I'm not a, you know, animal rights, hardcore person, but I do feel like if there is a way to just move the move a creature out of, you know, first of all, not to attract it. And second of all, to keep it out of your house, whether that means you know, you can block holes that mice and squirrels get in. You can um, make sure that your garbage is secured, that kind of thing. So I'm much more aware of that, even to the point where uh, it, we had a roof rat run across the deck one day. And I'm, I'm like, because I know about roof rats now. Like if you see a roof rat, and they're kind of cute, honestly, they're like squirrels, but with a naked tail. If you see one during the day, that suggests, well, there may be a fair number of uh, roof rats around because they're normally nocturnal. So I was like, well, it's a rat. <laughs> but I was like, we got to get a trap. And I was like, he's outside. He's not bothering us. Anyway, I, I, so yeah, I, I've made myself, I had to kind of rethink my normal reaction to something like a rodent. Um, and, and to, uh, we, you know, we tried to keep, just exclude the rodents and we succeeded with that. It was just one. Um, they're, it's not, they're not like, you know, an infestation of sewer rats. These guys are just around uh, when there's fruit on people's trees or, or, or they tend to show up in larger numbers. They, they come and go. That's the other thing. It's seasonal. A lot of these, we have a, we park a car in the driveway under a tree and these cedar wax wings once a year, when this berry bush gets ripe, they go mm. crazy on the berries. They all come to our tree and they shit all over the car. And my husband's like, God, I hate that. And I'm like, they do it once. It's once a year. I can tell you when it's going to happen. We can look at the berries and we can tell when it's going to happen and put a tarp on the car. We don't need, not that we were going to kill the birds, but yeah, just um, trying to learn a bit more about their habits and why they're coming. And also there's great resources for how to deal with them humanely, you know, the, which I list at the back of the book. Uh, So I'm much more inclined to try to educate myself on well, why are these animals coming around and and then and also if they get to be a, too much of a problem, there are some people you can hire who can get them out of your attic humanely and in a way that is actually humane, not just they're paying lip service to that. So yeah, no, I, I definitely um, definitely am more thoughtful in what I what actions I would take, you know, and I'm yeah. just, you know, and horrified that Amazon and even sell, everybody sells glue traps. It's like, yeah. Oh God. Why are, why are those allowed? I for, mean, for people who don't know any better, I was, yeah. I was that 20 year old once and never again. No, I know people don't, they don't really think about it because especially the thing is when we use, and the, also the word pest, it just gives us permission to treat these things as non sentient beings almost you know they're yeah. not animals they're pests so yeah. who cares what we do to them so I, I you know i don't like that word uh pest in particular but but yeah they're uh, and when it is a pest species i think people kind of been given permission to think that way i mean i used to set mouse the flip the snap traps actually kill animals very quickly if you know if the animal sticks its head in that's actually one of the more humane ways to kill a, a rodent if somebody's dealing with an infestation, you know, as opposed to poison, which is very slow and unpleasant, yeah. or the glue traps. And I forgive you for the glue trap. 
Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I feel I feel absolved. <laughs> you do get into Vatican City in this book, too, yes, but we obviously I don't have it. I've, I've already like we've already rocketed past, you know, like the yeah. agreed upon time limit for this podcast. But I do have another really burning question yes. for the, for the indie rock band. You and I will inevitably form after this conversation. Do you want to be called Danger Tree or Roof Rat, Roof Rat and the Snap Traps? <laughs> um, uh, da- Danger Tree. Okay. Danger Tree. <laughs> okay, I think so too. I like Danger Tree. Yeah, I, think I, do there were, too. I think there were there are other band names from this book. There was well, no, you know, I'm thinking of Gulp. I thought yeah. that a like a good death metal name would be um, Bolus. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go there with you. We could be Bolus. Opening for be- Iron Maiden. <laughs> yeah, Bolus. Bolus. <laughs> but I like Danger Tree. Danger yeah, that tree. one's that one's gonna look yeah. good on a t-shirt okay. too. Danger um, tree. So, World tour. <laughs> so obviously that was my most press, pressing question. <laughs> and we have we have glided to the end of this conversation. And so I will ask you my most hospitable one, which is is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about fuzz? Oh no, 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 no. This was terrific. This was so much fun. No, you good. We're good. <laughs> We're, good. We're good. I had a blast. Mary Roach. The one, the only. Thank you so much for joining me today on Fully Booked. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, Megan. That was Mary Roach, author of Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, published by Norton. Well, that does it for another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next week for the Year in Review, our last episode of the year, a fun one. Editor-in-Chief Tom Beer and I will be joined by journalist Michael Schaub, Uh, He writes the scene in her news stories you see on Kirkus.com, and he's going to join us to talk about some of the wildest, weirdest book news items from 2021, and we'll follow that with the interview that was our most downloaded interview of 2021. So you get Michael Schaub, Tom Beer, and me, and then our most popular episode of 2021 for next week's year in review. You won't want to miss it, but until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes.